Welcome to Neurologians, where our fictionalized theology hypnotizes our audience into elevating us to neurological theosis. Yeah, whatever the heck that means. Ray, when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes! This sounds a little bit like bullshit. Tonight we will be discussing In the Mouth of Madness, directed and scored by John Carpenter and written by Michael DeLuca. We are your curators, Bryson. And Zechariah. This is a spoiler-filled podcast. Listener beware. Slimy things in the dark, people go mad, they turn into monsters, you know. So John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Zechariah had never seen this movie before, and I was really kind of looking forward to his reaction to it, because I think, I mean, you know, Zechariah's upbringing didn't allow him to watch high, high art, such as In the Mouth of Madness. So what did you think about this? I was, it was, it was an experience. It's definitely <laughs> an experience. It was, it was interesting. It definitely, definitely a neat start and interesting. Going forward from there, I definitely noticed, <laughs> yeah. like the one thing that kind of stood out to me was there were a lot of Stephen King references in that. Scares me to death. I'm just vaguely familiar enough with Stephen King to be like, is that a Stephen King reference? You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. But, yeah. And I, th- I think we're going to find uh, some overlaps because Stephen King definitely has some weird uh, experiences or fictional things. Right. One of my favorite parts about this movie is this This sort of colors the entire... One of the things that uh, John Carpenter, while he was directing this, told the main character was that he wanted him to act... I forget this actor's name. Sam Neill. Sam Neill, you probably know him from like Jurassic Park or something. He told Sam Neill that like he wanted him to act as if his character was in a comedy. You'll see... <laughs> this play out it creates this really strange effect in the movie which it gives it like a like a wacky but scary feeling at the same time because sam neil always reacts and he's just bizarre <laughs> like he's just a little joke well we're not in the mood goofy comebacks and quick whips and stuff and everyone else in the movie is sort of acting like this dread horror thing is going on and then sam neil is just walking around like haha this is all a joke Never, never, never throw chips at a dry. Haha, it's stupid. And it creates this really interesting, odd, unsettling effect in the movie, which is one of my favorite parts about In the Mouth of Madness. Um, one thing that uh, I thought was interesting about this, it reminds me of this story about Wes Craven and uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street. Wes Craven, now I don't know if this is mythology or I think this is overall true, but he basically thought that uh, when like the Night Stalker and you know the 60s and 70s where all these uh, killers, these, you had like this weird serial killer problem going on. And Wes Craven thought that somehow when he was writing and dreaming up Freddy Krueger from Nightmare on Elm Street, that when these things started to happen, he was convinced that he had written this character into reality somehow. He became convinced his writing was real. And I think this sort of correlates with this movie because one of the major, sort of the horror setup, the plot of the movie is that there's a writer that has gone missing and he's he's a Stephen King-like horror writer. So, you know, sort of pulpy uh, genre horror fiction. He writes that horror crap. And he's gone missing while in the background, everyone seems to be going crazy. And, you know, it's like pandemonium in the streets and like these killers are coming around and there's fights breaking out at the release of Sutter Kane's books. <laughs> and Sam Neill's character is kind of, you know, he's like, oh, this is just a bunch of crazy geeks reading this shit and no one cares, but I'm going to take this case because he's a fraud investigator. And as the movie goes on, you start to see like his descent into madness at realizing that this Sutter Kane malarkey. That's a bunch of malarkey. 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 Appears to actually be in like controlling his mind. And, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that (laughs) John Carpenter believes in some capacity that we like these movies and tropes and things like have a effect on the experience. Interestingly enough, I think the uh, the fictional 
uh, town of Hobbs End is like in Maine. And Stephen King is big on like his town Derry in Maine. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff happening in Maine. And like various things in this fiction will like reference like this fictional town. I, th- I think it's a reference to a fictional town by Stephen King is one of the ways you're able to tell if something's part of the Stephen King extended universe is like by reference, somebody in the book references this fictional town in Maine. One of the pieces of this, right, is how Sam Neill's character, it's like John Trent is his name. What, How he figures this all out is he starts to put these like puzzle pieces together of the different covers of Sutter Kane's novels and I don't know. When I saw it on the movie, I didn't really see how this was supposed to work. But anywho, he like tapes all the covers together and like cuts out little pieces and it, it reveals this map to Hobbs End or like a picture of Hobbs End. I just realized what we could do. And Sam Neill's character believes he's like cracked the code and that in fact Hobbs End is a real town. It's just not on a map anymore. And he thinks that Sutter Kane has disappeared to this town as a part of a, a viral marketing scheme or something. And so he takes the case and says, I don't know if you guys want me to do this. He's like trying to seduce them into giving him the case. So he gets the case and Sutter Kane's agent goes with Sam Neill's character to Hobbs End. And, you know, of course, they're driving there and weird supernatural crap starts happening. And um, once they get to the town, right, like this is very much like in sort of a Lovecraftian universe. And they get there, they go to this hotel, they start seeing like the pictures are changing. Things are not as they seem in Hobbs End. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. There's nobody around. The town is basically empty. And yeah, so we hit that I think pretty early on we get this line. Yeah, his stuff's not real, but uh, what if... What if the universe thinks it is? Oh, yeah. It's like, when does fiction become religion? Correct quote is, so what might happen if reality shared his point of view? Or something like that, which is, which is kind of funny because it's just so like blatant. That's the theme of the movie, <laughs> you know. Uh, one of the things I think makes it, this movie interesting is like John Carpenter's uh, film technique. And one of the things that he's sort of known for is like, he's very, very minimalist with the lighting. So it kind of creates this, I don't know, would you call it bass or, you know, not very full of tone. I believe you're looking for the word atonal. Camera work or photography and lighting and whatnot. And then like, he'll do this thing where the camera will sit still and then all this stuff will happen in a still image. And it kind of creates this almost like a claustrophobic effect. Mm. And you know, when I was watching that movie, I totally got that. Hobbs End seems extremely small and like closed yeah, yeah. in. And a lot of the a lot of the camera work is done within like little rooms. So it's almost like it's like this labyrinthine, you know, claustrophobic effect that. You know, yeah, it feels like you could walk five minutes and get to wherever you want to in the town. Yeah. There's only so many places you can go. One of the highlights of this movie, I think, and where we'll probably focus most of the show is the shakiness of the reality going on in the movie. Very early on in the movie, you see where the main character will like witness an event, he'll fall asleep, and then like he'll see the same event, but something's missing from it. So he's, you know, reality in the movie is manipulatable. And this kind of ties into this idea of, you know, the nerdologian's topic of like fiction influencing reality and whatnot. Believe it or not, this is actually kind of a big topic. Uh, It kind of originates now in order to understand how we like get to this point of intentional reality shifting or influencing fiction. um, It kind of lies in the history of something called accelerationism. Sometimes people have heard of what accelerationism is, but it's a lot of times it's it's sort of associated with chaos spreading terrorist groups, right? Because the idea behind accelerationism is you're sort of trying to speed up the processes of the society that you're in in order to co- collapse them. For instance, and this is, you know, we're going to go into like Nietzsche and Marx and stuff. So like the main bad guy is like capitalism. So accelerationism through a capitalist lens would be like, accelerate the contradictions between labor and capital in order to create such a contradiction that it like blows the system up yeah so basically make capitalism even more capitalism because since capitalism is flawed then uh it will just die (laughs) 
Right. So, like, an example of this would be something to the effect of, let's like, for an environmental purposes reason, we'll say, hit the hit the accelerator on capitalism to the point of capitalism is forced to introduce a new society based on the lack of natural resources or something. I'm going to start this whole like background of acceleration is we're going to go into some Nietzsche and the death of God thing. Now for Nietzsche, a lot of people sort of falsely accuse Nietzsche of like intentionally like destroying God or something. But really when Nietzsche is talking about the death of God, it's more of like the social structures that rely on a specific view of God in order to remain cohesive. And for Nietzsche, the death of God, this just happened. It was just a state of affairs that occurred as opposed to like, you know. Yeah, he's uh, more a reporter reporting on right. something he's looking at. It's like, okay, something's happened here. Right. And for Nietzsche, this is just an inevitability, right? So Nietzsche's all against Christianity. So he thinks that this is the death of God is a consequence of Christian theology and Christian social society sort of being anti-life, which he saw the pagan religions as being more aligned and building upon natural forces where Christianity was like opposed somehow. And so for Nietzsche, when he gets into this sort of accelerationism thing, what he decides is that since God is dead, we should accelerate this process to like move on to the next stage in order to come up with some sort of replacement for God in the human psyche or whatnot. Now, I have a quote here just from uh, Nietzsche to sort of highlight kind of where he's going with this. Um, What he called this process of destroying God after God has been destroyed or whatever, he called it the great leveling. And what that was is that now that God is dead, all these different social structures that relied on that to give society cohesion would start crumbling, and that's what he wanted to accelerate in order to move beyond it. Um, the leveling of the European man is the great process which cannot be obstructed. It should even be accelerated. The necessity of cleaving gulfs, distance, order of rank is therefore imperative, not the necessity of retarding this process. This homogenizing species requires justification as soon as it is attained. Its justification is that it lies in serving a higher and sovereign race which stands upon the former and can raise itself this task only by doing this. Not merely a race of masters whose soul's task is rule, but a race with its own sphere of life, with an overflow of energy for beauty, bravery, culture, and manners, even for the most abstract thought. A yea-saying race that may grant itself every great luxury, strong enough to have no need of the tyranny of the virtue imperative, rich enough to have no need of economy or pedantry, Beyond good and evil, a hothouse for rare and exceptional plants. Quite a thing there. Enough! You want my head to explode? Yeah. (laughs) Nietzsche is a blast to read, if anybody cares. Now, this sort of idea is also found in Marx. Part of this whole thing is that, you know, he's a historical materialist. So he's looking at the economic conditions through a historical progressive way where you know, changes in society occur just through the history of economic have and have nots. So anyway, in Marx, Marx thinks that capitalism, when it gets to a certain point, begins creating the conditions for the possibility of like the liberation of the working class, right? Which would bring in some sort of socialist state. So Marx's idea was that these particular elements of capitalism that would create these conditions needed to be accelerated. So even though Marx is like, you know, trying to overthrow capitalism, he kind of, uh, you know, goes with the same idea that in order to create the conditions for the next thing, certain parts of capitalism have to be put onto overdrive. One of the more important figures that, you know, in our topic that we should dwell on is uh, Deleuze. Now Deleuze is a really kind of far out dude. And essentially, he he views the entire universe as machines or uh, smaller bits working together in something called like a super organism or, you know, little organisms combining into a big one. So he views all of reality in this sort of way. His idea was that capitalism and the battle between labor and capital should be accelerated because of this sort of quote-unquote schizophrenic thought or this sort of two-minded contradiction in thought that leads to this progression that you know 
exploits capitalism or whatnot and moves us into something like super capitalism. Okay, so we got that foundation laid with this accelerationist type of thing. Okay, any comments, <laughs> questions? So what, how does that end up with uh, Carpenter? Okay, we're still we're still working this into it. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so time passes. Dill uses probably later than this. Okay, so the history is not totally succinct, but during the between 1940s and the 1970s, you have this sort of art group, art philosophy rise up called the uh, the Situationist. Now, what the Situationist whole thing is is that um, this thing called capitalism. We'll just call it the superstructure or like whatever is like girding society. That it in our situation had advanced to such a point that it had like completely replaced social interaction you know like genetic family structures um you know government structures and whatnot uh, with the exchange of commodities and now what this does is it allows the situationists to view their sort of social realities as merely fictional tales that are being told to everyone to kind of keep them in line and all this kind of thing. now so they're, so they're basically pushing pushing that the narrative is a false narrative that's going on right but that we're kind of in this postmodernism thing where they're sort of all false narratives which is like now it's like hackable or something uh-huh. now they they're off to probably go into this a little bit but they they're into this guy named like Guy Debord, and he has this idea called the Society of the Spectacle. And essentially, he thinks that like the superstructure has turned our reality into like merely market forces and merely like mass media, uh, mass marketing things like that. And sort of their examples of this would be like Ronald Reagan as a president, right? Where like the movie star has become a president, or like how our presidential debates are almost like wrestling matches or like, you know, like it's like theater more than a technical debate. And what they thought, and this is where we get the term situationist, is that they didn't have such a reliance on people's behaviors being um, dictated by like their inner desires or their, you know, like genetic traits or anything. They're very much into this idea that it's the situation, quote unquote, that sort of lays the framework through which people's behaviors operate. And so what they believed, the way to sort of, you know, expose the contradictions is that they would create like performance art scenes where, you know, people would wander into their performance art and it would be highlighting these, you know, things in capitalism to where it would make them look absurd. But the people wouldn't necessarily know that they're watching performance art. Mm. So this is where we're starting to get into this like fiction being portrayed as truth and an influencing reality or not. So basically because for them, reality is basically one big fiction or reality as it is right now is like this big fictional narrative. They want to accelerate that, I guess, into a, a more absurd piece of fiction. Right. Right, they want to keep making the story unbelievable and then like replace it. I don't know if the situations ever get to a point where they're replacing it actively, but the idea is to make it so contradictory and absurd that it makes the people start questioning their narrative and seeking an alternative narrative that is more cohesive and more real or something. All right, all right. (laughs) Okay, now here's the next stage. In 1963, so this is an overlap with the Situationists, of course, um, you have this thing rise up called Discordianism. And it's sort of like a parody religion. Like if you read any of the Discordian texts, they're all very like tongue in cheek and it's sort of a mockery of religion. But the underlying motif is that the nature of the universe is inherently strange and chaotic. And so it was founded um, after the book was published in 1963 called the Principia Discordia. And essentially what they believe is like order and disorder, which, you know, it's basically like chaos comp, right? They're sort of looking at our societal structure as this sort of order versus chaos thing. Now the Discordians believe that order and disorder are like a essentially like a human mind construct that 
we adapt in order to like place things into categories and make sense of the world and that but it's, it's just a construct so what's underneath that all disorder and order is just like this trickster strange bizarre thing that is supposed to be beyond order and disorder and so the discordians in carrying this mantle of like this trickster motif is that what they end up doing as sort of like a praxis expression is they have this thing called operation mindfuck and what operation mindfuck is is that it is kicked off by the publication of this book called the this trilogy called the illuminatus trilogy by robert anton wilson and essentially what goes on in this is that it's like a story about a guy doing this investigation into these conspiracies and he keeps finding these things about the illuminati and What's interesting about this book is that it's interweaving false conspiracy theories with quote-unquote true conspiracy theories so that it all sounds like one giant narrative. And why this is kind of crazy is that like the Illuminati, this whole idea of the Illuminati being behind everything, like because I'm sure you've heard about the actual Bavarian Illuminati as opposed to conspiracy Illuminati. Well, this whole Illuminati mythos all comes from these books and it's interesting because like it's the 60s and the 70s and basically what the illuminati is in these books is it's you know these new world order socialist totalitarians that are trying to steal your civil liberty <laughs> so you can see how this has like permeated our culture especially right now yeah so this was and does this have something to do with accelerationism at all or they're just messing around in this fictional landscape they're messing around in the fictional landscape, but the idea behind it is based in this sort of process of accelerationism. Mm -hmm. It's to like seed these conspiracy theories and stuff into the superstructure in order to, you know, cause it to go crazy. Okay, so they're they're trying to stick uh, sticks in the wheels of the bike, basically. Yes, right. And so how much of like modern uh, conspiracy theory stuff do you think is uh, heavily influenced by this? A ton of it. If It was a weird experience for me reading it now as opposed to what it would have been like reading it in the 60s or 70s. But like I read these books probably four or five years ago and mm -hmm. I was just like floored by what I was reading because it was like, dude, this is like every conspiracy theory I've ever heard like wrapped up into one story. And people in these countercultural movements in the 60s and 70s, like they all believed this, that this was real. Like it was like someone disclosing the truth through fiction. So like, you know, they wouldn't get caught or, you know, hunted down or something. Mm -hmm. But um, one thing to kind of point out here is it, it seems to fit the timeline. Uh, it appears to me that like a lot of this is based in uh Michel Foucault, which I'm sure some people have heard of in some way. Um, and it seems to be built on this idea in Foucault of knowledge power. Now, what this is, is Foucault had this, his whole, he's a post, totally postmodernist. Okay. <laughs> but anyways, he had this idea that knowledge and power were so interrelated that they're basically the same thing. And he just calls it knowledge, power, power, knowledge, or whatever. And what it is, is that power structures it are basically founded on specific um like knowledge and what happens is is that like okay the society discovers a few pieces of key knowledge and the entire society is now based upon that so like like in medieval times let's say it'd be like the truth of the church or something or today it's like liberalism individualism and then like reason and science so you take these little truths and according to Foucault, it would create like this power knowledge dynamic where essentially, which Robert Anton Wilson actually uses this term called, it's like called reality tunnels. And what happens is, is, you know, it's postmodern. So since there's no like truth down there that really matters, essentially these are all elaborative narratives that sort of guide a society in a certain way. But what happens is, is that it creates like, you know, like I said earlier, like reason and science of today, liberalism, individualism, that's like the entire Western world. So once they discover these little pieces of knowledge, it creates this whole umbrella effect that 
elevates certain pieces of truth above others in order to maintain a power structure. Mm. So this is creating like the framework with which to, you know, sort of take situationism and whatnot and allow it to do what it's supposed to do. All right. So this, honestly, this uh, whole discordianism thing kind of rings some bells. Like, do you think that it's that there's any of that's kind of still active these days or did it, was it just a movement that influenced society then and we're just feeling the ripple effects? This is where we get the weird conspiracy stuff, right? And they, they love this kind of thing. And it's totally, totally popular on the internet, but discordianism is still a thing today, right? right? Where they because, have- like, because the thing I'm noticing uh, was recently brought to mind is the cult of Keck. Yep. <laughs> so you have like this frog god of chaos, and then you have like this weird thing going around it of like meme magic and. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all there, right? And this is what's like we've all probably heard of like Richard Dawkins and his like whole thing about memetic theory and the, like this transference of ideas, like through memes, quote unquote, and how they, they disperse themselves like genetic traits and whatnot. And this is almost like a weaponization of that idea to where if you just meme it enough, it becomes real. Mm-hmm. So do you think these guys are kind of still active in like a lot of these online forums? I totally think they are. I'm not sure they call themselves maybe Discordians, but there are definitely, there's definitely the phenomena of the troll. And there's definitely the phenomena of like the puppet account on like Twitter and whatnot and how they like meme things into existence. I mean, I mean, look at cryptocurrency. Like that's all meme magic. And I, I'm super into cryptocurrency, so I'm not dogging it. I'm just saying like, it's all like, you know, this sort of like genetic mimetic magic going on um but let's see i have a note here yeah like the illuminatus trilogy is about uh illuminati a totalitarian nwo organization that's that sole purpose is to steal individual liberties and all this kind of thing yeah, but yeah like i said earlier there's there's like the libertarian movements of the 60s and 70s and the ones that kind of grew out of like like occupy wall street and like Ron Paul Liberty stuff, like a lot of this sort of mythos that gets talked about in the background all actually originates <laughs> with the Illuminatus trilogy. So not even books. not even just the conspiracy community, theory community, but also more mainstream communities are still employing the mythos that's uh, founded within these books is what you're saying. Right, like even the, uh, the all-seeing eye as a mm-hmm. symbol of the quote-unquote Illuminati that comes from the <laughs> Illuminatus trilogy. Wow. Um, I have a little article here. Name of all that is good and decent! No more for today! That uh, will kind of get, maybe illustrate some Operation Mindfuck stuff. But it's, it's from the uh, New York Magazine uh, by Jesse Walker. Conspiracy theory is a hoax gone right. What the hell? Operation Mindfuck was a freeform art project. Come prank come. I mean, political protest of the 60s and 70s designed to sow the culture with paranoia. The key figures behind it were Carrie Thornley, co-founder of a satiric religion called Discordianism, and Robert Anton Wilson, a Discordian staffer at Playboy. Through every means available, Wilson explained in a memo laying out the plan. The mindfuckers intended to attribute, attribute all national calamities, assassinations, or conspiracies to the Illuminati and other hidden hands. So they planted stories about the Illuminati in the underground press. They slipped mysterious classified ads into libertarian journal Innovator and new left newspaper Roger Spark. They cooked up a letter about the Illuminati that Wilson then ran in the Playboy. When a New Orleans jury refused to convict one of the men who the conspiracy hunting district attorney Jim Garrison blamed for the JFK killing, Garrison's booster Art Crunken of the Los Angeles Free Press got a note revealing that the jurors were all Illuminati initiates. The telltale sign, none of them had a left nipple. <laughs> so so in the actual in the actual court battle that was about supposedly the conspiratorial JFK killer, the the Operation Mindfuck people would like send them Illuminati letters in the mail and shit and try to convince them that this was all an elaborate conspiracy plot. And so they, you know, nothing like, you know, the internet today was around back then. So they like, you know, how do you even 
discern like is this someone messing with me or am i really getting <laughs> letters from some secret organization telling me the illuminati wow that's pretty that's pretty crazy stuff isn't it yeah and so you were really big into the uh, conspiracy community at one point so you're kind of like now you're on the outside kind of looking in uh i'm still sort of a conspiracy theorist but my conspiracies sound more like this now than they do like the actual illuminati like you look at the world today and there's like so much conspiracy stuff floating around and like when you track down where it's coming from it's just coming from like really dank holes of the internet and then people just perpetuating this idea until it basically becomes real i mean you know it's pretty interesting stuff I mean, we talked about baudrillard in our opening episode and his like idea of hyper reality and you know uh, the modern world has sort of like replaced like you know i don't want to call it fiction but like the representation of reality with the real they've become one thing to where if you can just mess with the representation long enough like it will reflect what the quote-unquote real is in some way mm. now this play goes into this thing called theory fiction uh now this is kind of like an unknown eh, it's gaining gaining in popularity in some way but there was this group called the ccru which is the cybernetic culture research unit and essentially what this builds on this baudrillard thing where baudrillard talks about how you know reading science fiction was a better revealing of the of the world than more than philosophy or some kind of critical theory and this sort of gets built upon by this group called the ccru where they're not going to go so much with quote unquote science fiction they're going to they're going to zoom way in on like cyberpunk stuff right and why cyberpunk is different is that like uh you know like science more fiction immediate. right basically it's more immediate and it it doesn't have like this sort of utopian thing that science fiction of back in the day had or it doesn't have like a supernatural element like horror does it's sort of this it's almost like the the real the real circumstances that the world's heading into right and nobody is like one of the key things about cyberpunk okay human augmentation right so you go in and you get your arm replaced by like a metal arm one of the things of cyberpunk is that it's not it's not trying to critique this in any way it's just how it is so it's not saying oh yay uh look at the amazing progresses we've made in science or is it trying to say oh we should never do this it's just saying hey this yeah. is this is the reality now people people now have knives coming out of their hands yeah you've have you read neuromancer is that the one by i think i have william gibson oh no okay well anyways it's sort of like one of the foundational I, I, novels. yeah i was sorry i was thinking i was thinking snow crash for a second okay that'll work too for real because you know like but if i can remember snow crash is it kind of critical of the society or is it more like it's just how it is it's kind of it's kind of a semi-comical take on it it's just like mm -hmm. oh yeah they're now pizza delivery uh got the pizza is now run by the mafia which i swear to god my whole <laughs> my whole uh interpretation or prediction of what the future is going to be is going to be like it's kind of like snow crash right like everyone is delivery drivers of some form you have gated communities and everything's privatized and i mean i can see it but anyways that's sort of cyberpunk for you and one of the things that the ccru is really into is this sort of like hyperstition theory fiction thing where they sort of saw our like there's different members of the group and they have different takes right like mark fisher's more of a communist type and then nick land is like a hyper capitalist and so what, what really what they're discussing is how our society is accelerating into this point where it's either going to go basically it's like ai's taken over and all this kind of stuff but we're nick land and he's he's a delusion so we talk about this thing where people are like machines and they're interchangeable pieces of a greater machine and all this kind of thing this is where they they almost start describing this narrative hacking as a way of like implanting a computer virus into the population to where you know they're going to seed these alternate narratives through fiction through theories in the fiction in order to like accelerate 
the capitalist process. They're called the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit because this thing called cybernetics, which is a lot of people will sort of just think of as like computers and maybe like androids or something. But really what marks cybernetics is it's, it's this idea of uh, control systems and feedback loops. And essentially like what a feedback loop is, is the best way to explain it would be like a, uh, a thermostat at your house, right? So like there's a certain set of data that's being processed in the thermostat when it's like 70 degrees. As soon as it gets to like 73 degrees, it trips the system, it makes it do a correction. So, but that's like a negative feedback loop. What the positive feedback loop is, is which the CCRU thinks we should be using to seed these fictional narratives to change the population's beliefs or whatever, is a positive feedback loop. And what that does is it amplifies the changes in the equilibrium of a system. So it's it's sort of a technical way of, you know, exaggerating the contradictions we've talked about before. And believe it or not, their primary worldview is just Lovecraftian stuff. So like elder gods and eldritch horrors and the unforgiving, uncaring universe. And so you're saying the CCRU believes in like elder, elder gods? At least metaphorically. All right. And like Deleuze gets into this too. I think it's, what is it? I don't think it's Anti-Oedipus. I don't think it's A Thousand Plateaus. I can't remember which one it is, but one of them, they like descend into this Lovecraftian thing where they're just uh, copy pasting passages from the, like, what is it? Like the silver key in Lovecraft. So they have like this Lovecraftian chaotic worldview and like the old gods, the ones that don't care about humans and all this stuff, they're actually, like that's actually closer to how the universe works. Which finally brings us full circle back to in the, in the mouth of madness. <laughs> <laughs> but here's a quote from Nick Land um, explaining his hyperstition uh, feedback loop thing where they're trying to like sow discord and chaos into the narrative. Hyperstition is a positive feedback circuit including culture as a component. It can be defined as the experimental technoscience of the self-fulfilling prophecies. Superstitions are merely false beliefs, but hyperstitions, by their very existence as ideas, function causally to bring about their own reality. Capitalist economics is extremely sensitive to hyperstition, where confidence acts as an effective tonic. And inversely, the fictional idea of cyberspace contributed to the influx of investment that rapidly converted it into a techno-social reality. Abrahamic monotheism is also highly potent as a hyperstitional engine. By treating Jerusalem as a holy city with a special world historic destiny, for example, it has ensured the cultural and political investment that makes this assertion into a truth. Hyperstition is thus able under favorable circumstances whose exact nature requires further investigation to transmute lies into truths. All right, there you go. I think that explained it pretty well. Now, in our notes, I, I wanted to talk more about like Richard Dawkins and this meme concept. Are you familiar with that? Vaguely. Okay, I'm sort of vaguely familiar with it too, but I think the main idea goes along with what we're talking about. Essentially, is that certain ideas are transmitted similar to how genetic traits are transmitted in a population where the good ideas will stick around because of their practical use, whether that's like keeping order in your society or maybe survival concepts or, um, you know, uh, keeping your ship afloat using certain methods and stuff. These ideas will continue on because they are, quote unquote, survival of the fittest, whereas bad ideas will effectively weed themselves out. And you can totally see how this sort of concept is used in our culture today by, you know, do you remember? Okay, here's a good example. Um, Slender Man. Remember Slender Man? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Slender Man starts off on the Something Awful forums. Uh, it's like a mythological, you know, uh, scary entity, demonic entity. And so people begin writing like fan fiction and things about this entity called the Slender Man. And I don't know, this is something, if anybody's interested in this kind of thing, uh, the entire Slender Man mythos, because there's like four or five of these web series that are like hundreds of videos long of people filming video stories of Slender Man storylines, and they're super good, so everyone should watch them. They're kind of, 
they're they're amazingly creepy for like how low quality they are and they're filmed as if they're really happening to these kids because they're all like teenage kids making these movies but they're filmed as if they're real and this sort of like permeates the culture to the point where there's like there was a documentary on hbo i think it's just called the slender man murders where these two girls murdered their friend or attempted to murder their friend i can't remember if they pulled it off or not but they were essentially sacrificing them to a fictional deity on the internet called slender man and this kind of goes into this sort of paranormal usage of the term tulpa which is like it's basically a fictional or imaginary entity that if enough people believe in it it's believed that it takes on some sort of actual existence so like we mentioned earlier that Wes Craven when he had done Nightmare on Elm Street Freddy Krueger thought that he had actually so many people were watching his movies of this killer that attacked them in their dreams that it had actually manifested in the real world all right so speaking of things the fictional things that have kind of manifested in the real world I think I want to like bring us all the way back to Stephen King a little bit Okay. Because, so are you aware of like the significance of the number 19 in the Stephen King universe? This is Dark Tower stuff, right? It's Dark Tower and all sorts of other stuff. Right. right? Extended universe, yeah. And so like you remember like Gunslinger where it's like the number is 19. Mm -hmm. So Stephen King had this near-death experience. Like I think this is post uh, him having 19 as a significant thing in this universe. Stephen King then has a near-death experience on june 19th 1999 which is like very weird very uh significant turning point in his life and then that's where we start to have like stephen king show up in the dark tower series god i love that i loved when that happened that book series there's a really good book for the listeners to check out and this is actually i found out about this guy in my mike heiser days and you remember when Mike Heiser was like on the circuit and he was kind of doing like some sort of fringy talks and he, he used to talk about a guy named Jeffrey Kripal. Okay, you might be interested in this guy. Jeffrey Kripal is like a Gnostic. He's a self-proclaimed Gnostic religious studies guy. And he's sort of a part of this really weird group that I don't know if we want to get to on this topic on this podcast, but they're very much into like viewing the paranormal and science fiction and comic books and stuff as some sort of path that we use to write our own scientific advancements and spiritual advancements. And there's a book, what is it called? Mutants and Mystics. Definitely get this book. It's awesomely illustrated. I mean, it's super sick. And uh, his whole thing is about how most of our paranormal beliefs and our beliefs in the supernatural are actually generated by our comic books and like science fiction and stuff. But what that does is it creates this loop where the comic book writers base superpowers off paranormal stuff. And then this gets transmitted into, gets transmitted into like us producing technologies that mirror what we have written about, which is also influenced by the paranormal stuff. Well, I don't know if this is off topic, but I'm just thinking back to like how our, like the Judeo-Christian worldview of angels these days is so very much influenced by Milton's Paradise Lost, mm -hmm. where our angelology just looks so much different from like a Second Temple Jewish angelology. And then that comes into our fiction where we see angels and demons portrayed in this way. Uh, angels are these dudes with wings and demons are fallen angels. And it's just one of these feedback loops that is just like continually building right. on itself. Yeah, it's extremely fascinating because it, it like it just it almost doesn't matter in the long run if like, you know, because like we went through this when we got into the Mike Heiser stuff where we had these kind of preconceived notions of how angelology and demonology and all this kind of stuff worked. And then like even if you kind of had a notion that it was different in the ancient world, it definitely, you can definitely tell like a huge break between what they believed and what we believe, believed. And I think that really just kind of adds to their theory about a lot of this stuff that, you know, it's like fiction works itself into reality in some capacity. In some examples of this, I mean, I wrote these down, like, you know, Isaac Asimov, he was a scientist, was he a scientist or was he like just really science minded? Yeah, he was like a uh, professor of biochemistry. 
Okay. Well, you see, like, you know, he wrote the iRobot series and he had, like, the rules for robots and everything. Well, that was, like, actually used by, you know, robotics and artificial intelligence people for years to, like, sort of determine what, if we were to create artificial intelligence, we should do it like Isaac Asimov suggested and displayed in his fiction. Yeah. And then, like, you see this all the time where, you know, a lot of the, the engines that, engineers are trying to create that would like allow faster than light travel you always hear them trying to make the warp drive from star trek so like you have all this energy and capital being poured into a project that in its roots is all originates in star trek <laughs> and you know like gene roddenberry you know like he has a particular worldview and stuff that he's trying to promote and then through his you know influence through this fictional universe that inspired all these people to become engineers and things is somehow actually creating the pathways which we are trying to you know develop technology that's definitely definitely an interesting uh thing there yeah pretty wild okay we were gonna probably move on to the next section here but um we wanted to go over a few authors that like have sort of used this method to sort of spread their influence and their ideas and different things and uh, the first one i wanted to go into was william s burroughs and william s burroughs if you're kind of a literary geek like you know you you read william s burroughs in your lit classes in school and stuff people study his work and all this different stuff but one of his big deals was um he believed in this sort of concept that you know narrative symbolic reality or whatever could be influenced through his writing by this same sort of method, the kind of like Robert Anton Wilson used, where you you write a story and you implant enough fiction and nonfiction interwoven together to where it actually changes the reader's mind on things or pushes them in a certain sort of spiritual direction. The Burroughs, uh, he attended Harvard University, studied English, and he studied anthropology as a postgraduate. And um, uh, he actually, one of his big literary pushes, one of his big inspirations for his writing, if you could call it an inspiration, was the uh, the death of his wife. Yeah, where he like shot her in the head. <laughs> he like shot her in the head. And what's weird is, is he looks at this as some sort of thing that makes him believe in the, in the, in the possibility of demonic possession. And he calls it like the ugly spirit or whatever. And here's a quote. It says, I am forced to the appalling conclusion that I would never have become a writer but for Joan's death and to a realization of the extent to which this event has motivated and formulated my writing. I live with the constant threat of possession and the constant need to escape from possession and from control. So the death of Joan brought me in contact with the invader, the ugly spirit, and maneuvered me into a lifelong struggle in which I had no choice except to write my way out. So for Burroughs, He's, he's, I mean, he's sort of doing like occultic rituals through his stories in order to like dispossess himself of like some evil spirit. That sounds almost Lovecraftian in a way where you're like struggling against some eldritch horror with your uh, small thing you're doing. Yeah, Lovecraft, man. He was, <laughs> and it's funny because there used to be in like paranormal yeah, the, cult circles. So, you know, like the, the music of Eric, uh, Eric Zahn. Yep. Where he's basically, he's having to uh, play his music in order to... Which is another one of those things, right? Where it's like, was this guy just reading Lovecraft and like came up with all this crap? And then it just sort of filtered its way into his life to where, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Burroughs had a long-standing preoccupation with magic and the occult, dating from his earliest childhood. This is just from Wikipedia, the fountain of all knowledge. Um and was insistent throughout his life that we live in a magical universe. In the magical universe, there are no coincidences and there are no accidents. Nothing happens unless someone wills it to happen. The dogma of science is that the will cannot possibly affect external forces. And I think that's just ridiculous. It's as bad as the church. My viewpoint is the exact contrary to the scientific viewpoint. I believe that if you run into somebody in the street, it's for a reason. Among primitive people, they say that if someone was bitten by a snake, he was murdered. I believe that. Since the word magic tends to cause confused thinking, I would like to say exactly what I mean by magic and the magical interpretation of so-called reality. The underlying assumption of magic is the assertion of will as the primary moving force in the universe. 
a deep conviction that nothing happens unless somebody or some being wills it to happen. To me, this has always seemed self-evident. From the viewpoint of magic, no death, no illness, no misfortune, accident, war or riot is accidental. There are no accidents in the world of magic. So anyways, that's William S. Burroughs. So like the listeners, definitely go check him out. Um, he was actively into this sort of like inter interweaving magic and trying to will things into the universe into his fiction and believed that through his writing he could actually will his will into existence and then the next guy is jorge luis borges now i mean he's basically doing the same thing as william s burroughs uh, he writes this book called the olive and the olive actually has him as like a main character and essentially, you know, he goes through this great religious experience and then goes on and on about sort of like his metaphysical and theological claims about the universe. And what's interesting about Borges is that, like, have you ever heard someone say something like, I'm spiritual, not religious? Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, we hear this all, all the time. Common. I mean, I'm glad that I've come to the point where I realize this statement is just cringe as hell. And it's just as like the favorite of like upper class white women. <laughs> but believe it or not and probably to the dismay of the upper class white women this all came from this like south american author jorge borges and so there you go here's another example and i think one of the bi biggest examples we can really stress and this will probably be the final one is uh, l ron hubbard and scientology right oh yeah this, this is a very obvious one i think at some point yeah. We're just kind of obligated to do Battlefield Earth at some point. I'm extremely pumped. Because since, we're, since our whole podcast is about the intersections between these popular media, science fiction, fantasy, etc., and religion, theology, uh, and if we don't do that, we like, need our neurologians licenses revoked. And I think like this is starting to have an effect on me, this topic, because just a few weeks ago a friend of mine uh went to this like used bookstore we have in town and he got me uh two books from there and they're like old nice classic editions and one which is obvious is a uh, free live free from gene wolf which is extraordinary but right after we had like sort of talked it was like even a little bit before right when you brought up doing uh that book by l ron hubbard he got me uh, typewriter in the sky by l ron hubbard and right when i got it i was like oh my god it's neurologian's freaking destiny we have to do l ron hubbard and then zechariah <laughs> brought it up immediately after so i don't know i'm probably being theory fiction here <laughs> into progressing the podcast towards l ron hubbard but um one of the modern incarnations of this and i think this will probably be the last touch point we hit is um alternate reality games alternate reality games is like a transmedia sort of treasure hunt mystery to solve that embeds its clues into the internet now i played a few of these i don't even remember where i actually learned what one was well i think i actually stumbled upon one on like a conspiracy message board and i just kept digging into it digging into it and it, eventually I found out that this is actually just an elaborate online game going on. You know, you solve puzzles and whatnot. And it was really bizarre. Like what would happen is you would, you would, there would be like an image. It'd be just some strange image. And if you like looked close enough at the image, there would be like a code in the bottom right hand corner. And once you put that code into like a specific part of the website, it would bring you to like a web page. And there would be a bunch of weird crap on the web page that didn't make any sense. And if you looked into the source code of the website, there would be like a random link hidden in the code. And so you'd click on the link and then it would be like, put your phone number in. And then you put your phone number in and then you would get like phone calls late at night, late at night that would say like, we're watching you, you've gone too far and all this kind of thing. So like the point of the alternate reality game is to sort of start, is to like, blend or confuse you into wondering like did i really stumble onto something or is this all part of this game so as you go further in the game you're supposed to become more and more convinced that this is actually you've like discovered some elaborate plot i don't know 
or something. And one of the first ones was called Ong's Hat. And Ong's Hat is like some ruins outside of a town in New England somewhere, I believe. And what it is, is like the creators would like seed these clues throughout the internet and they would put like ads and papers and all this kind of stuff. And it just took you on this elaborate story about how there was like this lab in these underneath these ruins and they were trying to create some kind of time machine or dimensional portal or something. And you would just, it's like a carrot, you know, on a string in front of you or whatever. And you would just consistently keep digging up these clues and whatnot. And it got to the point where all these people were showing up in this town that didn't realize it was a game and they would just go through the town and they were like searching for clues and everybody's like what the hell and it got to a point where like people were getting arrested for trespassing in this town and it was all just this elaborate game online but it had convinced these people that it was all real and there was another uh like iteration of this that got really big for a while was just the cicada 3301 puzzle and essentially what it was you had to like solve cryptography puzzles and things like this in order to get to the next stage because there was like this shadowy group that was looking for the most intelligent of individuals and then if you could solve the puzzles you would be like enlightened to all this conspiracy truth or something and then again like you see this today in like the whole QAnon thing right because like the Q drops are elaborate lists of clues and stuff and little rabbit holes to go down that you know eventually you're so far down the rabbit hole that you like believe that this story is real and it has like real world implications as we all saw you know through the all the QAnon crap mm -hmm. so there you go all in the mouth of madness <laughs> all right you got anything to add I'm not sure. Like this is definitely, definitely quite a lot to get from, <laughs> from that one movie. Yeah, this is pure nerdologia right here. <laughs> tie it to like go all the way back to the movie itself. One thing that struck me that I never really got an explanation for, is at the very beginning of the movie, when he's like in an insane asylum, and later on we get the kind of come to the conclusion that he's not really insane. He's just like hiding out in the insane asylum. Right. So they not exposed to all this stuff. What was with all the crosses? <laughs> I think he was doing it just to make himself look crazy is what I got uh, out of the movie. Right? So, like, the character... So they didn't let him out? Right. So, like, the character sort of knew that, like, this, this fictional mind control thing basically got so big that he would never be able to not get sucked into it unless he was locked in a cage and couldn't interact with it in any way which is i mean kind of prophetic in a way because like like look at the look at the modern political scene like you don't it's so hard to tell what is like real and fake that like any attempt to go down that rabbit hole is you're probably going to buy into part of the conspiracy at some point you know what i mean and i think that's like you know displayed in the movie where john trent jack trent whatever his name is is He's so aware of the influence of Sutter Kane's reach in his novels that you can't, you know, because like he goes around the streets and everybody's like, You ever read Sutter Kane? You ever read Sutter Kane? And everyone's reading this story and they all get sucked into this Sutter Kane is taking over the world thing. And yeah, kind of a weird prophetic movie, as all John Carpenter movies are. All right. have to, there it was. Yeah, that was definitely an interesting experience all the way through. This was mostly Bryson's Bryson's little child here. Yeah, I'm obsessed with this topic, actually. Like, if anybody knew how much... I tried to condense it, and I tried to do it justice, but I've been studying this sort of whole concept for at least a year and a half, and I've read tons of books tons of articles and podcasts on this and i hope that you know the audience found it semi-interesting yeah and i think we're gonna keep seeing stuff like we have before where we see this fiction affects reality affects fiction yeah it's a real thing and that's why nerdologians is important 
All right. Well, thank you for listening and good night. We are right. curators signing out. All this strange behavior from people that read the books and um, the agent going nuts and so on. It's a, I figure it's, it's like mass hysteria, you know? It's like, um, it's a pop phenomenon. It's a craze. It'll pass you.